Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I've got Darcy with me live and in living color on a Friday <laughs> evening. How are you doing, Darcy? I'm doing all right. Uh, we're going to see how long we can take this because um, I took my laptop in for getting the display fixed. And so I'm on my other computer, which means I'm just out in my room. So I had to turn off the AC and the fan and everything. Oh boy. And so yeah, the out. heat index is like 104 right now. So sweat it we're going to see how sweat long I can, I can make this. <laughs> if I just stop talking 45 minutes into this thing, you'll know it's because I had a heat stroke. So. Oh, geez. That's yeah. awful. Like it's very right? cool in the basement where I am right now. So yeah. You'll be jelly. It's okay. Mm-hmm. I won't be. Yeah, oh, for real. I'm on the third floor of my apartment building, too. So <laughs> that's just I'm like everything's awesome. So it's the best. <laughs> okay. Um, we're going to start it off with chatting about a little update on one of the cases we talked about previously. In episode 36, we talked about Chevy Keo, and it was in relation to him knowing Israel Keys which we did an episode. Um, episode 35 was Israel Keys and Samuel Little, mm-hmm. and we referred to his knowing Chevy Keo, and then we did Chevy Keo as a bonus episode the next week, mm-hmm. which I believe the episode came out September 12, 2019. So if you're interested in a little bit more information about that, you can go check out that episode. But evidently there's been an update on that case, and it came out on AP News about 24 hours ago, and it was U.S. appeals to proceed with first federal execution in 17 years. Mm. So, evidently, the courts have determined the justice system is determined to proceed with the first federal execution in nearly two decades. So that's 20 years that they've had a moratorium on that. And all of a sudden, they're like, let's do this. The Justice Department plans to appeal a judge's ruling that would halt authorities from carrying it out on Monday. So there is an execution plan for Monday. The family of the victims in the case had requested that it be called off because their fear of the coronavirus would keep them from mm. attending. Whoa, that's kind of dark. Not that they really wanted to see this guy yeah. die. Right. They don't really want to see this guy die, but they want to be able to give, be given the chance to watch it. They have long asked that he be given a life sentence instead, and their pandemic objection could postpone the execution indefinitely. Daniel Lee, 47, has been scheduled to die by lethal injection on Monday. Lee was the accomplice of Chevy Keo, and he is from Yukon, Oklahoma, and was convicted in the Arkansas 1996 killing of gun dealer William Mueller and his wife Nancy, as well as their 18-year-old daughter Sarah mm-hmm. Powell. Again, if you're interested in more details on that, you can certainly go check out that episode 35 of our show. But uh, Chief District Judge Jane Magnus Stinson ruled Friday that the execution would be put on hold because the family's concerned about the pandemic, which evidently has killed more than 130,000 people and is ravaging prisons nationwide. So that's a significant issue. About an hour after the judge's ruling, the Justice Department filed its notice to appeal to the 7th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals and filed court papers asking the district judge to stay the order pending the appeal. This is based in Chicago, interestingly enough, which is not too far from me, and includes Indiana, Mm -hmm. where the execution was to take place in the federal prison in Terry Hope. The Justice Department argues that it's likely to win this appeal, and it contends that executions require extensive planning and coordinations with law enforcement officials, and says that dozens of staff members are already being brought in from other facilities ahead of Monday's planned execution. So they're like, hey, we did all this planning, we're making this happen, we can't just undo these preparations. Attorney General William Barr has said part of the reason that Trump's administration wants to resume executions is to deliver a sense of justice to the victims' families. Mm-hmm. But relatives of those killed by Lee strongly oppose this idea of the death penalty in general. They want him to have a life sentence. And they want to be there to say, we don't want this done. We don't want this, essentially. Gosh. So they don't want to be there to watch the execution. I want to make that clear. They want to be there to say, we are against uh, okay. this. And if I'm not 
mistaken. I think that they believe, and there is some question about whether Daniel Lee was actually the one who shot the family. A lot of people believe Chevy Kehoe was actually the one who murdered them. Correct. Yeah, I think that there is definitely a division as far as what people believe on that. But I think the most important thing is here that whether it's Keo or Lee that did this, they don't want the death penalty for either one of them. That's that they oppose that. Mm-hmm. Their relatives would be traveling thousands of miles and witnessing the execution in a small room where the social distancing recommended to prevent the virus spread is virtually impossible. Mm-hmm. There are currently four confirmed coronavirus cases among inmates at this particular prison where Lee is being held. And one inmate has died of that there. So they're really taking that into account. But the Bureau of Prisons thinks they can carry out this execution without there being a risk. And they've put a bunch of additional measures in place, including temperature checks and requiring witnesses to wear masks. So... Hmm. I think they're really just afraid for themselves as well. If they're going to head over there, they're going to be subjected to the possible exposure to the virus. Absolutely. And I think this really highlights the struggle in recent months to stem the exploding pandemic of the coronavirus behind bars. As mm-hmm. many people are aware, more than 7,000 federal inmates have tested positive for the coronavirus. And about 5,000 of them have recovered, which is still about 2,000 inmates have died mm. from this. And that was in late March they came out with those statistics. Um, so Lee's attorneys have sought the delay on the grounds that they've been forced to choose between their own health and adequately defending their client. So they're also opposed to it. We mm. shouldn't have to be there, be around when we're exposing ourselves to this. Chevy Keogh, whom prosecutors described as the ringleader of the killers, recruited Lee in 1995 for his white supremacist organization. Again, this is listed in our earlier episode. Two years later, they were arrested for the killings of the Mueller's and young Sarah in Tilly, Arkansas, about 75 miles northwest of Little Rock. At their 1999 trial, prosecutors said Keogh of Colville, Washington, and Lee stole guns and about $50,000 in cash from the Mueller's as part of their plan to establish a whites-only nation. Just absolutely bonkers. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lee's attorneys, again, as you mentioned earlier, cite evidence from his trial that Keogh was actually the man who killed Sarah, which is mm-hmm. what he was, Lee was um, prosecuted for. The executions appear to be set to happen following a Supreme Court decision refusing to block them and lower court affirming the ruling. It's not clear what will happen in the other scheduled executions for which there are a bunch of them that are scheduled next week for Wednesday and Friday. Hmm. So I, I'm not really sure how I feel about this. I don't, uh, I don't know how I feel about the death penalty right now, too. I mean, do these guys who did these vicious crimes, do they deserve the courtesy of not being exposed to the coronavirus? Do the people involved in the case deserve it? Yes. Do the prisoners? Mm, I'm not so sure I believe that they are. But in this particular instance, given that there's been so much question as to whether Keo mm-hmm. was actually the one that did the killing, I think that he needs to be afforded the opportunity to exhaust the appeal process and then if the family opposes the death penalty, too, there's that issue. Yeah. You no, know, are we, do we give that yeah, weight? Yeah, I think. Or do we just I think that, the there, there, that weight should be given to the victim's family and whether or not they oppose or support the death penalty. And I've said it, it's not a new opinion to hear from me that I'm against the death penalty um, across the board. So, I mean, and especially when there's cons- there's concerns about safety of family members and safety of correctional you know employees and yeah 
But they're the ones that are arguing they've got it under control and that there is no danger. So I guess right. we'll see where this goes, what happens. I, I think they're probably going to put them off. They're going to not go forward with those explanations. Yeah. But in any case, we got to wrap that up so that we can get on to the main case yeah. for the day. Darcy's got a one that we did a while back, but our sound quality was not so great back then. So we're redoing it and kind of expanding on it and presenting it in a way where it's just going to sound so much better than the first time around. <laughs> so much more exciting. Yeah. So, so, you know, we did this very, very early on one of like the first probably 10 episodes, maybe I think of our show. Um, and since then we have new mics and our sound quality is so much better. So I wanted to tell it again, because this is a story I think more people should know about. I haven't heard any other podcast do this story either. So I, I actually have not either. And I'm kind of excited about that because I have kind of an inside view of this too because I've talked a little bit about what I did before I went back to school to get my PhD. And when I was in San Diego where Sarah and I met, I was working with Naval Special Warfare. And as part of that, I got to go to some pretty awesome conferences. And one of those conferences was a Special Operations Combat Medicine Conference. And that's where I heard this story for the first time, even though it did take place in Alabama. I did not hear about it at all. So my information today is going to come from two sources. One is going to be a long-form article on the Wall Street Journal, which we're going to link to in the show notes. And the other is going to be from the lead medic of the FBI's hostage rescue uh, team, who was actually on the scene and who I listened to at this conference. So I can't link to, obviously, his information, but you're just going to have to trust me on that. And a lot of it does overlap with the Wall Street Journal. So this is the story of the 2013 Alabama bunker hostage crisis. All right, let's do it. On Tuesday, January 29th, school bus driver Chuck Poland was on his afternoon route dropping kids off after school in Midland City. And this is kind of like southeast Alabama. It's kind of between Enterprise and Dothan. It's not too far from the Florida State so line. Was it pretty rural so, or like kind of a country little Yeah, little I'd never heard bumping. of Midland City. Okay. Yeah. And, um, and this is a dirt road kind of a situation. And um, so his usual routine was to drive up a dirt road and drop off the kids that lived at the top of that hill. And then he would turn around, do like a three-point turn in this like cleared out area that a neighbor had cleared for him just a couple months prior. Mm. And that neighbor, Jimmy Lee Dykes, would often come out to the bus and bring the bus driver some vegetables that he grew on his property because it is pretty rural. So, like, you know, he this is a guy who lives alone. He grows his own vegetables, all this stuff. And Sounds like, you know, good old-fashioned, friendly country living, you know? Right. And and actually, just the day before, on Monday, you know, when, when uh, Chuck was turning around, Jimmy comes out and, and asks him if he likes broccoli and carrots and you know they agree yeah he's like I like broccoli so Jimmy's like okay well I'm gonna bring you some broccoli some broccoli tomorrow so on Tuesday when you know he's turning around he sees Dykes coming up to the bus nothing seems particularly out of the ordinary like I'm right? about to get my vegetable so on. so like let's exactly make this happen. and so Chuck goes to open the door and Jimmy comes up on the bus and pulls out a Ruger pistol and then he hands Chuck a letter and the letter starts with, I have a story to tell. He then orders Chuck to select two well-behaved boys with no mental or physical problems and cuff them together with a black zip tie. 
And the letter continues, no harm will come to the kids, and when the story is finished, they will go free, and I will die. Okay, that's not starting off too good. A little ominous there. No, so... So Jimmy Lee Dykes was a 65-year-old Vietnam veteran who had recently been fired from his job as a truck driver, and he was estranged from his wife and two daughters, the oldest of whom would later describe him as having a fondness of firearms and a hatred of authorities. Wait, you said he was a Vietnam vet? Yep. Yeah. And and she would talk about how that he, how he abused their mother. He would get drunk and he would he would beat their mother, his wife. So at the time of all of this, he lived in a leftover FEMA trailer on one and a half acres, and he often complained that he was going to poison the neighborhood dogs because they went to the bathroom on his, on his property, so he said he was going to put out bowls of antifreeze to poison them. I don't them. understand. So, like, on the one hand, he's, like, this vegetable-loving, sharing, loving man who cleared out a clearing so the bus mm-hmm. can do a three-point turn and provide everyone with fresh vegetables, but on the other hand, mm-hmm. he's beating his wife and trying to kill neighborhood dogs. Like, how does so, that reconcile? Yeah, so I think people like this, and we're going to kind of find out, people like this have particular people that they want to reach out to. And for some reason, this bus driver was one of those people where he kind of decided he could be whatever you would want to call friends with, you know. But he was very, he wasn't friendly to neighbors. He just kind of, people just kind of tolerated him. They tried not to bother him and because he was volatile, you know. Yeah. So... He, uh, in 2012, a year before all this happened, he and a neighbor drove to Walmart where on the drive he complained about some new gun law and hypothesized about taking people hostage in a church until a reporter broadcasts his views against the law. Like, who does that? (laughs) Seems so bonkers. So pretty, pretty chill guy. So, like, I can understand being pissed about gun control or like new mm-hmm. legislation that's coming forward that you feel is violating your rights, but like threatening to kidnap or kill or like in response to that seems a little bit extreme. Yeah, this is a guy who felt like nobody was listening to him. So, like, he kind of had this idea that I'm going to do something to make everybody listen to me. People are finally going to listen to me, kind of a thing. Ugh. So, yeah. So also in 2012, Dykes hires the same neighbor to help dig an underground bunker, and he says that this is going to be a storm shelter that's going to shield him from the hurricanes that hit Florida and the Gulf, which, like I said, because of where Midland City is, is not that unusual. You would get a lot of storms coming off of the hurricanes that hit the Gulf. Yeah, um, I've heard a lot of stories my... about bunkers and things like that, too. So like, I don't right. think he would probably think there was anything unusual about that at first. Sure. Sure. And so the weird thing, though, is that when the bunker was finished, Dykes had the neighbor climb down inside and ask him to scream at the top of his lungs. Okay. The neighbor figured that Dykes wanted to see if people could hear the yelling in case, like, a tree fell on the opening of the bunker or, like, in case he got stuck there after a storm. But Dykes was pretty, pretty jazzed about the fact that he couldn't hear the neighbor when he was down there screaming. Okay. So, given his views on government and the authorities, it shouldn't be too surprising to find out that he had more than a few run-ins with local law enforcement, right? As they do. Yeah. A sheriff's deputy had recently responded to a complaint from Dykes that pecans were falling on the public road from a neighbor's tree. Like, Mm. they got into it over pecans falling on the road. Dude, collect them! (laughs) Those are worth money! I mean... Especially in Alabama. Good pie. (laughs) So 
basically the sheriff's deputy goes out there and all of this is in a body cam video that that's on this wall street journal article and dyke says you know all the boys at the top they shit on all of the people at the bottom he also built a speed bump on the road to slow down a neighbor who drove really fast in a sports car and when that led to an argument he pulled out a gun okay so for that incident, he was actually charged with a misdemeanor and was due in court on January 30th, 2013 to face those charges. He would not make that court date. You think? Yeah. So back on the bus, Dykes promised the bus driver, Chuck, that there would be consequences if he didn't hand over the kids. And there's a camera at the front of the bus up above the rearview mirror that kind of faces the rest of the bus so that... The this is 2012. Kinda, this is like, they have this, cameras on all buses now. Yes. And so th- the bus driver can keep an eye on the kids while he's driving and everything. And what happened next is recorded. And you can't see the interaction between Dykes and Chuck, but you do hear it. And you see the children's reaction. So you see them ducking down behind the seats. And all of this audio was captured. And I'm going to play it now. Um, but I'm going to put a warning here because it is very, very graphic. And this is a clip that is about three minutes and 40 seconds. If you want to just fast forward in the episode. It's about three um, and a half minutes, folks. Yeah. And, you and you're going to hear the 911 call from a, a child that's on the bus, along with the interaction between um, Dykes and Chuck. 911, where's your emergency? Um, I don't know. We're on the bus. Someone's trying to take our kids. Okay. Come here. 
You will not be home. Stay in there with me, okay? Um, The kid sounded so calm at first. Like, I wouldn't be that calm. I'd be flipping out. Yeah. So, basically what happens is Dykes gets on the bus and demands that Chuck hand over two kids and then Chuck refuses. He says the children are his responsibility. He can't let them go with anybody else and that there's people that can help Dykes. And you can hear Dykes become more and more upset and he just starts pointing to random children on the bus trying to get any of them to get off the bus with them, which none do. And, and Dykes tells Chuck, I don't want to shoot you. I want two kids, six to eight years old. Make a move. I'll shoot you. Do it. Chuck responds, sorry, you're going to have to shoot me. And so this is the point when a 16-year-old student calls 911. And that is the, the voice that you hear talking to the 911 operator. It's a 16-year-old kid. Jeez. Unbelievable. Yeah. And so Dykes is still pointing to different children on the bus, telling them to come with him. And then he turns to five-year-old Ethan Gilman. And... Ethan is autistic, and he could get pretty easily distracted. So he often sat at the front of the bus near the driver, so the driver could keep a good eye on him during during the bus route. And, and Dykes is telling Ethan that he won't be harmed, and Chuck is talking to Dykes, saying, he's scared to death, I can't do it, I can't do it. At this point, Dykes fires one shot at Chuck and you can see in the video the bus starts rolling backward through the trees because when Chuck gets shot obviously his foot comes off the brake so the bus starts rolling backward into the trees and you can see all this happening kind of on the outside of the windows a few seconds later Dykes shoots Chuck four more times Dykes then pulls Ethan from his seat and drags him down the stairs and you hear the student on the 911 call scream he took a kid he took a kid so once Dykes has Ethan down in his bunker, he then himself calls 911 and says that he has a hostage and he's in an underground bunker. He says the only way that police can talk to him is through a PVC pipe that he had installed by his front gate. And when local law enforcement got to the scene, the first thing Dykes says is, try taking the bunker by force and there will be a loud boom. Throughout the evening, local deputies, state troopers, SWAT, and FBI negotiators arrive on the scene, but by 9 o'clock that night, Dykes tells him he's done talking for the night. How convenient. So, yeah, so, so law enforcement ends up talking to the neighbor who had helped build the bunker, and from this, they're able to get a rough description of the dimensions of this thing. So 
it's it's on a raised mound of dirt that is kind of supported by a wall of cinder blocks and the entrance is covered by a really heavy two foot by four foot wooden hatch. And then when you open the hatch, there's like a 29 inch like square and there's about 10 feet deep. And you get down into the bunker by a wooden ladder that goes down into this entrance shaft. And then from there, there's about a 90 degree turn that opens up into a six foot by eight foot kind of alcove. So this entire thing is barely tall enough for a, a man to turn and to stand up in. And that's why he needed small children, according mm-hmm. to his note. Right. So around midnight, the FBI decided to try and slip a camera down the PVC pipe so that so they could possibly see what Dykes is doing in the bunker. But as the agent's on the ground peering down into the pipe, he sees something blocking his view. So they bring in an x-ray machine over to examine the pipe. And that's when they saw the first bomb. There's a tube of gunpowder and shotgun pellets with a trigger cord that ran through the pipe all the way into the bunker. And so when the FBI agents get up off the ground, they kind of take a look around and realize his entire property is covered with PVC pipes sticking up out of the ground. The next morning, so this is day two of the hostage crisis, the FBI evacuated the neighbors and they placed a speaker and a microphone next to the PVC pipe so that they could still talk to Dykes without cluing him in to the fact that they discovered this bomb. And that afternoon is when the FBI's critical response team and the hostage rescue team, including criminal profilers, bomb sniffing dogs, attack dogs, technicians, crisis managers, and medics arrive. And this is the lead medic of the hostage rescue team. This is who I heard tell this story. So he kind of talked about the logistics of taking care of everyone from a medical standpoint, everyone, including law enforcement, Ethan, you know, veterinarians for the dogs in case the dogs get shot, all of that stuff. So that was really interesting to hear his story from his perspective because it was very professional and detached from the emotion of the story. And this is an emotional story. So that was kind of interesting. So, Ethan had some medical and behavioral issues and he required a long list of medications that he had to take like every eight hours. So the last thing you want in this situation is this unhinged man in a bunker and for Ethan to miss a medication dose and him do something to make this man, you know, lose it. Right. So the first thing they had to do is figure out how to get Dykes to let them get Ethan his medication. And, they got Dykes to agree to send down his medicine and they also sent like coloring books and toys and his favorite color was red so they sent a lot of like fire trucks and things like that down in there for him to play with and kind of keep him occupied and distracted and with every medicine drop they could get a better idea of how he secured this entry hatch so basically he would loosen these steel cables that he had attached from the eye bolts in the hatch he had them attached to like the ladder and he would loosen them just enough to open up just wide enough to get the medicine in and then he would Mm -hmm. close it right so the second thing they did was they convinced him to let them drop a phone down so they could communicate better the weather's getting bad you know it'd just be a lot easier if we could communicate by phone with you and he agrees to that and then once he gets the phone he started rattling off his list of demands of course he says he'll exchange ethan for a female tv reporter who can broad broadcast his manifesto because there's always a manifesto right is she gonna be a hottie 
after he well he, he says no he didn't have any requirements for how she looked as far as we know but he says that after he delivers his message he's going to put a plastic bag over his head fill it with helium and the reporter's going to hold his hand while he dies is that a thing can you die from that yes oh wow so they put a female fbi agent on the phone and they tell him that this is a reporter right and she's talking to him for a little while, but that afternoon, somehow, and they don't know how, he figures out that she's fake, and that pisses him off, so he cuts off all communication with the FBI. Oh boy. So now so this was a planted person that yeah. they were using to try to, so she wasn't a real reporter. Right, and, and okay. so he cuts off communication with the FBI. He's not going to talk to the FBI anymore, but he will talk to local law enforcement, okay? And... Hmm. Somehow, the other thing they did with this is they they snuck a camera down into the bunker. And the lead medic wouldn't say how they did this because it's part of operational security. He didn't want to give away their secrets, but they were able to get a, a camera down there. And they couldn't see very much, but they could see Ethan and they could see Dykes. They had a bucket that they used as a toilet and they had a bunk bed. And they could also see it, uh, the pistol sitting on the bunk bed. All right. Hmm. On day three, the authorities began kind of trying to plan how they're going to rescue Ethan. And the first idea they come across is, you know, what if we pump sleeping gas into the bunker? Well, that happened in the 2002 Moscow theater hostage crisis. And I encourage you all to look that up on Wikipedia. It's super fascinating. But basically in that incident, um, some, some militants took over a theater which had 850 people in it. And they pump in some kind of toxic chemical through the ventilation system. They did kill the hostage takers, but they also killed more than 200 of the 850 hostages. Oh, for jeez. So that idea is So they didn't next. put sleeping gas in there. They put some sort of poisonous gas. We, they, it's Russia. They haven't released what they put in there. Oh, Lord. So, but it's very fascinating. You should go look at it. It could also be a false flag operation. But anyways, Ooh, that so could also be a follow up episode for us. Uh, that, what? Would, that would be awesome. So, yeah. obviously, that idea was next. The next suggestion was, hey, what if we send drugged food down? But you can't risk Ethan possibly eating it, right? Well, and then how are they going to get him out if the, there's bombs everywhere? Well, if he's asleep, if Dykes is out, then they just pop down there and secure the area and get Ethan out and arrest Dykes. But it's booby-trapped. How? It's not, okay. it doesn't have like a dead man switch. So like he has to pull that trigger. Okay. Got so it. yeah. Explain what a dead man switch is for the people that don't understand or know. Yeah. So a dead man switch basically is something that is tied to a person that you, it's typically the way you see it in like movies or whatever is that it's, you know, somebody continually has pressure on, like, the trigger, and when they take the pressure off, so if you shoot the person and they obviously can't apply pressure to the trigger anymore, that triggers the bomb, mm -hmm. the, taking the pressure off. So it's called a dead man switch, because if the person dies, then that triggers the bomb. And how did you learn that? Uh, probably a movie. Course, or do you just... <laughs> no, I don't, I'm, I don't know if it's even a real thing. I probably saw it in a movie. But, um, but yeah, this, this cord, he has to go actually pull it, so... So if he's out, they can secure the area, they can recover Ethan, and they can arrest Dykes, and nobody gets hurt, right? But the right. risk with that is Ethan could possibly eat the food. Or, I mean, he could give the food to Ethan to test it first. I mean, you don't know what this guy's going to do. Mm -hmm. So once the news of Dykes' demands for a female reporter became public, you had a lot of local reporters volunteer, but obviously the FBI isn't going to send him another 
hostage. They have no guarantee that he's actually going to let Ethan get out. They don't know that he's not going to kill the reporter when she's down there. I mean, it's just an unknown situation. Exactly. You never know what he's going to do. Exactly. So they're just, it's just an unreasonable request kind of a thing. They're not going to do it. Officers then go search his property and they find some receipts from Walmart and Home Depot. And the purchases were for shotgun shells and a propane bottle. And that's when they realized he had a second bomb inside the bunker. So they, the FBI up in Quantico, they recreate this bomb and realize that if he shot it with an air rifle at the right place, at just the right spot, the whole thing's going to blow up. Okay. Okay. And so that's the plan. That's, yeah, that's part of his plan. It seems like that's like his backup plan that he, if, if they try and take it, that's what he said. If you try and take the bunker by force, there's going to be a loud boom. So because they have this camera in there, the FBI knew that Dykes had a TV inside the bunker. And so even though this hostage situation is making the news, law enforcement had reporters strategically place their cameras so that he couldn't see the supplies that they were bringing in. Like, for example, okay. the lumber that's going to be used to recreate the bunker and practice this rescue mission. Okay. Smart, right? So, yeah. So the way this bunker set up, you have this entry tunnel. And basically all of that space is taken up by the ladder. So if you jump down the ladder, there's a good chance you can land on the bottom rung and break a leg. And now not only are you injured and you're useless to the rescue, duck. but you're a sitting duck and you're preventing the other agents from entering the bunker. You're crowding up that space. There's not a lot of space in there. So the hostage rescue team kind of creates this like crossbar that they're going to play like kind of like a pull up bar. They're going to place it over the top of the hatch and they're going to kind of swing down into the hatch and then they're just going to, you know, forego the ladder altogether. So they build this this mock um, bunker and they practice this over and over and over and over and over again. And this is going to allow them to get multiple agents into the bunker and kind of overwhelm Dykes before he has a chance to either hurt Ethan or blow up either of the bombs that he has. So meanwhile, how is this little Ethan doing? Like this kid isn't freaking out. Like I know he's autistic, but like, is he okay? He's pretty much chilling. And we're going to kind of talk about that in a little bit here. Cause it, cause things are going to start, start to shift as we go on all right so so as they're practicing these maneuvers the fbi profiler is trying to get a read on dykes and the best way to negotiate him so from the conversations that she's listening to with the local law enforcement she identified him as an injustice collector which is you know somebody whose anger just builds up and up over all these perceived injustices accumulated over the years and she also called him a promise keeper so basically she says if he says he's going to blow up the bunker he will blow up the bunker. Like, there's no calling his bluff on this guy. So, day five, this is when the first mistake is made. By the, so the guy or Dy- by the FBI? By the FBI. Okay. So, when Dykes goes to open the hatch to get Ethan's medicine around one o'clock, he spots a sniper rifle. Uh-oh. And... On the camera, they can see him holding his gun and pacing the bunker. He's agitated. He's pissed off. He used the phone to call and tell them that he knows how to fire the gun just right to detonate that bomb. He also says that he's taught Ethan how to pull that trigger on the bomb in the PVC pipe and that he, if he's dead, Ethan has been instructed to pull that trigger. Hmm. So 
This is also the time that the FBI brought in Dykes' oldest daughter, Cindy, just in case they needed her to help with the negotiations. And Cindy she hadn't seen her. Did she say he, like, abused her mom and, like... Yeah, but they're hoping that person. he will have an emotional attachment to her, even though she doesn't have a relationship with him. Oh, boy. Kind of a thing. So she hadn't seen her father in over 25 years. Like I said earlier, she remembered him as volatile, a racist, an alcoholic who loved guns. And so she's when totally she, on board with rebuilding that relationship. Yeah, <laughs> right. And so when she left her house, she kissed her kids goodbye because she kind of imagined that she was going to take the place of Ethan in this bunker. Oh, my God. Like she thought that was it. Yeah. So day six. And by now it is clear that clear to law enforcement that Dykes' affect has completely changed. Earlier in the week, he was looking after Ethan, kind of taking on almost grandfatherly role. But he's now basically neglecting him entirely. So, so this is kind of to your himself, question. Right? Yeah. And he's also started rehearsing the steps to detonate the bomb that's inside the bunker. Oh, that's not good. And, you know, he's basic. He's he's ignoring Ethan. Like at one point they see him step on Ethan's truck and Ethan starts crying. Aww. And and Dykes just ignores them for over an hour. Oh, my God. So so it's getting bad. And. He Dykes also set 5.30 p.m. the following day as the deadline for his demands to be met. Okay. And so that means the following morning, this is now day seven, local law enforcement gets on the phone with the FBI director, who is a man we're all now familiar with, Robert Mueller. And they all agree that negotiations have now failed and that the teams on the ground have the final say on when to begin this rescue operation. All right. But they have to have the perfect conditions so that Ethan's not going to be in harm's way. So they have to have Ethan clear of the entryway, and they have to have dykes inside that entrance shaft when they blow the bunker hatch. That's very specific. Yeah, because, I mean, it's so small that you can't have... There's very little room for air, right? Right. So to put this plan in motion, they bring in Cindy to the site, and... They tell Cindy's her, the daughter? Cindy's the daughter. Yeah. So they okay. tell, they tell Dykes, Hey, we brought your daughter. She wants to video chat with you. She's got pictures of her kids, you know, and all this stuff. And he's emotional. He wants to talk to her. He actually asks if he can have a minute to brush his hair and change his shirt. So oh. he wants to talk to his daughter. Okay. So they've hit on something with him. Right. So that's good. They get him to open the hatch and they send a laptop down so that they can video chat. And just as he reaches the bottom of the ladder, the FBI blows the hatch. Oh, boy. So they blow the hatch, and the point man puts the crossbar at the top of the opening and goes to swing down into the hole, but he gets stuck halfway down. Oh, no. And the second man is right behind him, and he lands right on top of him, and now they're both stuck. And Dyke starts firing around the corner nine times. All right, boom, 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 boom. The point man knows he can't fire back because he can't risk shooting Ethan. So he's just sitting there getting shot at, all right? Wow. They pull the men out, and the next move is drop the dog. Okay, so they have this German shepherd named Ella, and Ella is specifically trained to run into holes and disable suspects. Like, I don't know how you specifically train Jesus. that as an attack dog, but that's her job. And this whole idea is they've lost the element of surprise now with blown hatch that the agents got stuck. He knows they're coming. So now they're going to send this dog to distract him. Aww. So 
I'm sorry. I feel so bad. <laughs> so, I'm such a dog lover. I'm like, I know I am too. No, not the dog. So, so they, they drop down Ella and Ella gets stuck halfway down. Oh no. All right. And so they pull her out. They pull out Ella. Ella's okay. But what happened, and this is the first time they see this, is each time Dykes opened the hatch to get the medicine, he added another steel cable into that web. So he's creating like a web of steel cables about halfway down this entryway. All right. And that's what they're getting stuck on. Okay. So... Like I said, they pull out the point man and the lead medic checks him, make sure he hasn't been shot. And they check the dog, make sure the dog's cool. And while that's happening, you've got FBI agents halfway down the hole, head down with bolt cutters, cutting the steel cables, right? And by the time the lead medic has checked out the point man and given them the all clear, he's turned around and is like, we're getting back in the hole. He's the first one down, back down there. All right. These guys, I'm telling you. Yeah. They so, don't get paid nearly enough to do this. And and between the time that they blew the hatch and the point man goes back down, four minutes have passed. And that's a long time in, yeah, in the salt. situation, absolutely. Yeah. So so the other thing when they when they cut the cables, they also drop flashbangs down there. So there's a lot of smoke, there's a lot of noise. They're hoping that Dykes is disoriented at this point, right? So the point man, like I said, he's the first one back down the bunker. He basically lands on his butt and just kind of falls over because he doesn't use the crossbar. He just jumps down. All right. Right. And he just kind of falls over. And he's hoping that when he falls, he's, he's lunging toward Dykes. But he misses. And the second oh. time he lunges, he finds Ethan. Yay. So what he does is he just hunkers over Ethan, covers him with his body. And he tells the lead medic later that he just... He was like, I'm just going to cover him with my body. And the next thing I expected was a bullet to the back of the head. Yeah. That's all he could do. So the second man drops down right after the first and then the third. So they dropped down three agents in three seconds into this bunker. Oh, my God. This must have been chaos. Sheer chaos. And it's remember, it's a six by eight hole. There's no room. Okay. So the second agent drops down. He begins shooting at Dykes, but because they're so close, Dykes is basically able to reach out with his hand, put his hand up, and disable the gun, like pull it out of battery, right? So the third agent comes in and shoots Dykes five times in the chest, but he's still standing. He's still screaming. He's still standing. He's not down. And he's able to disarm this agent's gun. And by the time the third agent is down there and his gun is disabled the second agent is back in commission and the way that the lead agent describes it as he says basically every, the whole thing is filled with smoke he looks at the ground he finds the guy in the tactical pants that's his fellow agent he sees jeans he follows the jeans up follows that upward 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 and then he eliminates the threat he kills Jimmy Dykes this whole thing happens in five minutes I know I've heard this story before, but it's just as intense the second time around. Yeah, it's crazy, right? So Dykes had gone through one and a half magazines in his pistol, and he had been shot a dozen times in the face, neck, torso, and hand. Good Lord. He got shot five times in the chest and didn't go down. 
He wasn't wearing any kind of Kevlar or anything. That's like, what was he on? Good lord. He's had to have been drinking or doing some kind of drugs or something. To my knowledge, I didn't find anything, but... That's just intense. Yeah. So they they bring Ethan up out of the bunker, and they have an ambulance waiting. And they have, you know, they just filled it with red toys, get him trucks, get him red toys. It's his favorite color. He loves it. how freaked out this poor kid probably was? Yeah, and they also give him sunglasses, because he's been in this bunker for almost seven full days, so they don't know what it's done to his eyes, right? Yeah. So... The lead medic checks Ethan out to make sure he doesn't have any immediate injuries, and then they're going to send him just to kind of do a wellness check at the, at like the local hospital. But yeah. while they're getting while he's getting checked out at, at at the ambulance, he looks up at the medic and he says, "Holy cow, those army guys are loud." <laughs> That's all he says. Oh my god! And then he kind of looks at him and he says, "What happened to that man?" And the medic just responds, "Oh, you're not going to see him anymore. He's gone." Bye. And Ethan just went back to playing with his toys. The resilience so, of youth. His teacher actually thinks that his diagnosis actually helped him kind of cope with the situation. Right? That happened. Um, I mean, what a blessing. Yeah. So hundreds of people showed up for Chuck Poland's memorial service, the bus driver, and the state of Alabama named the nearby road where they set up the control center. They named it Charles Poland Jr. Memorial Highway. Mm. The National Association for People Transportation gave the 16-year-old student who called 911 an award for alerting the authorities and remaining so calm right? on the call. He was so he, calm. Like, I would yeah. have been flipping my lid. He now lives in North Carolina um, with his grandmother. Britton Norris, the 911 operator, quit shortly after the incident. She said yeah. the emotional stress of the job overwhelmed her. Good Lord. I agree. The, FBI honored Houston County Sheriff's Deputy Lieutenant Bill Rafferty a medal for meritorious achievement. That's the highest award for a non-agent. He is the local law enforcement who began the negotiations with Dykes after he quit talking to the FBI. Right. And he is now a captain at the Houston County Sheriff's Office. And immediately after the incident, Cindy Dykes calls her children and said, they killed him and they used me to do it. What? Later, she said that she did understand that they had that he had given them no choice, but that was kind of her immediate reaction because that is kind of what happened. They said we're going to let you talk to your daughter, and then they—that's when they started the assault. And from everything I've heard and read, this was a rescue mission of Ethan and Ethan only. They were not going to try and just incapacitate Dykes. Well, I mean, he was clearly mentally insane. He, she, I mean, she's right in her later statement that he did not give them a choice. He just didn't. No. And and uh, Cap, now Captain Rafferty said that, you know, he said it still stings that we couldn't save Dykes, but I'm convinced this thing ended the only way he would have allowed it yeah. to. And I think I mean, that's probably no an choice. accurate statement. Mm-hmm. Ethan turned six shortly after the incident, and the special agent in charge of the operation, the sheriff, district attorney, and other law enforcement agents sent a cart full of red toys to his birthday Aww. party. <laughs> and after a year, he no longer brings up the kidnapping. Wow, that's awesome that he was able and, to recover so mm-hmm. well from that. He, According to his mom, he's he has had some significant behavioral issues after the fact. Well, I mean, it's got to impact you in some way, yeah. shape, or form. It's not something you can just forget about and doesn't ever, like, impact you mentally, mm-hmm. physically, or emotionally. But 
mm-hmm. it's good that he's not exhibiting like you know I think somebody who maybe perhaps would not have been autistic may have been impacted in a very very dramatic and mm-hmm. severe way I'm not saying he wasn't impacted but I think that may have helped him to not have had such severe and I think that's what the experts were saying as well right that's what his teacher said um, I've not seen anything from um, like a mental health professional, but I that's can't imagine what his that not impacting said. your subconscious, sure, uh, subconscious at some level. I mean, mm-hmm. this poor kid, he didn't, you know, know what was going on, and it was scary. Yep. yep. Yeah, and like I said, I will link to the Wall Street Journal article. It is an incredibly well done article. It's a graphic article in that as you scroll down, it's kind of an animated thing. You see you see a, like a drawing of the bunker and, and you can watch the videos and, and listen to the audio if you want, but be warned it is very intense and very graphic. But that is the story of the Alabama bunker hostage crisis. Wow. Like I said, I've heard the story before on a couple of different occasions and it just, it's still intense and powerful and like you listen to the tape and it's a little bit hard to hear because there's like some stuff, you know, it, it's mm-hmm. a 911 call uh, from a child on a bus. So obviously you're not mm-hmm. going to get the best sound quality you can possibly get because they're not in a studio and kids are screaming and there's noise and background and things like that. But I, at first when I heard the, the video clip, because I never heard the clip before, mm-hmm. we didn't listen to it the first couple times. But the first, you know, when I'm getting into the first couple seconds of that clip, I'm like, this kid is calm. This is not that big of a deal. You can hear the guy yelling. But then when you hear the gunshots and it's like, mm-hmm. it turns it into a whole another thing and it just brings it to this intensity level where you're just like on the edge of your seat yeah i the first few times i listened to it the moment that gets me and it still gets me every time is when he says he took a kid he took a kid it makes me start to tear up because i just can't imagine the terror i just what gets me is not necessarily that as much. I'm not saying that doesn't get me, but when I hear the kids in the background screaming yeah. and crying, that's like, oh my God, that just tugs my heart. I can't, I just mm-hmm. can't, I can't hear small children or children or anyone being hurt that mm-hmm. has no control over it and can't defend themselves. Oh my God, that just breaks my heart. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you're hearing them screaming, but in the video, you're seeing the bus just start rolling backward and going through oh trees, God. and you see... It's... I'm sure those poor kids had nightmares for years afterwards. Absolutely. Absolutely. And nobody ever got to know what Jimmy Lee Dykes ever wanted to say. I mean, Good. that's a very Bye. small part of it, but yeah. He doesn't deserve it. Like, you do something yeah. like that, you don't deserve to have anything that you have to say heard by anyone. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's just my personal opinion, but... <laughs> yeah, it's not I a think fact, it's very folks. It's just personal opinion. I think I think it's a, a very sad situation. Yeah, absolutely. I wish he, there was help for him before this happened, but he did not give an, give them any. He didn't give them the chance to just arrest him. That was never his plan. He I mean, from the beginning said he was going to die in the bunker. It's, I think, a very sad situation as well. Um, my father is a Vietnam vet, and it just mm-hmm. seems as though so many of the men and women, in more particular the men of that generation who went to Vietnam, have just suffered in silence and have a lot of mental health issues. They have a lot of PTSD. Mm-hmm. They have a lot of undiagnosed mental health issues, and just the system has failed them. Yeah, exactly. And what can we do? I mean, that's the thing. It's like, 
I think that's what lawmakers and healthcare providers grapple with. Like, how do you fix this? How do you like get to a point in this country where like we can help remedy this issue? Because it's not just Vietnam veterans now. Right. It's people that are coming back from the Iraq war. It's people that have current military experience. Mm-hmm. We've got to figure out a way to help these military service members and to get them help. And just, I think, mental health in general. Mm-hmm. Because you're find, I think we're finding increasingly now that so many crimes perpetuated in, in many instances have to do with mental health. And if this person had just had some sort of mental health care prior to the commission of the crime, then none of it would have happened or it wouldn't have happened in the way that it did in the severe, the severity that mm-hmm. it happened. Yeah. So, and it, it, you know, I don't know what would have ended up happening with, with Jimmy Lee Dykes, but I feel, I feel confident. I can say it, he, it wouldn't have affected as many people as it did. You know, Ethan yeah. never would have come in contact with him. Chuck Poland never probably never would have been murdered. You know, all of those children who were traumatized, you know, all of that, that, that probably would not have happened. I don't know what would have happened with Jimmy Lee Dykes, but, but the ripple effect of, of it, I think would not have happened. Yeah. I mean, and I I don't know what the solution is. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a shrink. I I don't have medical knowledge. I don't have an education in the medical field. Yeah. So, I mean, it's easy for us to sit back out here on Monday morning quarterback and to make guesses and and try to diagnose people. And and it's just simply not helpful. Like there has to be some sort of significant change in the way our society treats, interacts with, and diagnoses people with mental health issues. And it has to come now because we are seeing the results in a very significant and dramatic way now. Mm-hmm. So anyway, uh, this is point in the podcast where we say so long, farewell, please rate, review, and subscribe to our little podcast. It is very, very important for you guys to do that. Those couple of small steps take just seconds out of your life and it really helps our podcast stand out among the competition it also helps us to create content that you listeners enjoy and to really adjust our podcast so that we can reach out to those of you who want to hear the topics that we're talking about and we can adjust as need be Uh, darcy social media yeah we are at the bfd podcast on twitter and instagram and we'll post our articles and um, pictures. There's there's some pictures of the bunker, so you can actually see what this thing looked like. Um, yeah, I don't think we posted pictures the first time around, so it'll be we interesting didn't. To yeah, get some pictures out there on this one. Yeah. So so yeah, we'll be sure to post a lot of info there. Um, and please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild cases. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. Bye, guys.